Welcome to another episode of Acts of the Blood God, U.S. Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. How are you doing? I've been playing Witcher 3, and I've been enjoying it. I've been getting back into it. Oh, good for you. I thought you were finished it, though, but I guess DLC? Yep, I'm into the DLC now. I've been playing the Hearts of Stone DLC, which has been very enjoyable so far. I kind of wanted to catch up on it, and I've always wanted to at least finish Hearts of Stone and maybe get into Blood and Wine, so... Mm-hmm. Oh, good luck with that. I'm still I'm still working on RDR too. Are you? Well, yeah. I how am. far are you at this point? Uh, I am, uh, I think, chapter six or seven, something oh, like that. So you're near the end. I don't think I wouldn't go that far. The my the marker says fifty percent. Okay, I'm constantly 60%. impressed by your ability to just crank through games. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm admittedly taking my time. It's like I get distracted. It's like oh, I'm going to finish this. Oh my god, look a deer! I got to shoot it. I have this problem, and I'm kind of I'm kind of between games right now. Mm-hmm. And I've had this problem where I've been playing Devil May Cry Five and enjoying it, but as usual with a game like Devil May Cry Five, and I had this problem with God of War as well. When I'm playing it in the moment, I'm mostly really enjoying myself, mm-hmm. but when it comes when I'm not playing it, it feels like a burden to actually pick it up and start playing again. Yeah, I've had that happen to me as well. So I feel I, I understand your feel. It's not like Stardew Valley. With Stardew Valley, I couldn't wait to pick up my Switch and keep playing. And I think I just have a hard time focusing in on single-player, linear action-adventure games in which I am more or less a passive observer when it comes to the story and the character development. I am right. just doing the inputs to make the story continue. Right. Yeah, I could see that being, uh, being the case. I think uh, I felt the same way about God of War, to be honest. I really like games where I have some investment in the world or how the character develops or I'm able to change things in the world Mm -hmm. or I feel like I'm living in a hologram. I I like those kinds of games, which is why I think I really like strategy games and RPGs the most. Right. Uh, When it comes to just straightforward action and linear action adventure games, and Devil May Cry 5, by the way, is a very good game and I'm actually really enjoying it. Yeah, so Uh, here's great. But I just have a hard time focusing on it. And I don't know if it's just like social media, too many games, the fact that I've never been that big of a TV watcher. I don't know. Yeah, I wonder if that's a good point, too, because I feel the same way you do. And I'm not a I'm not a TV watcher. I was super into Red Dead Redemption 2. And I think that's only because it's basically a stripped down Witcher 3. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which intrigues yeah. me because I love the world of, of Red Dead Redemption 2. I just love riding a horse and farting around. Yeah, in Red Dead Redemption 3, or 2, you can just <laughs> ride around, hang out. Um, I spent a lot of time obsessing over what clothes uh, <laughs> uh, my character would <laughs> Me be too. wearing. Yeah, so I'm, I'm out there like just like kind of building outfits like I'm playing a Barbie game. Oh, what should I wear today? Oh, the Marauder looks so nice. There were so many times when I showed up at one of the hotels and they were like, hello, and I'm like, yeah, screw you, and I would go up to the hotel up into the hotel room and it almost felt illicit <laughs> and i'm just like all right now i'm gonna try on this outfit oh i'm gonna try on this outfit oh i like this outfit <laughs> it is kind of a, a fun way to pass the time in the game i'm someone who doesn't give a damn about fashion like in game or out of game but i just love those outfits sometimes i would just stand by the window and watch things pass by mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> like a weirdo <laughs> <laughs> your people watching like a creeper or i would just ride around on my horse because it was fun yeah, whereas I- if the game is just kind of like keep playing and now you're fighting this thing it's yeah i mean it's it's enjoyable but Mm -hmm. there's a reason that i'm only six episodes into the sopranos even though i kind of resolved to start playing it. it's a passive activity 
No, I completely, I completely sympathize with you because I just, uh, I start watching things and I, I never finish. Well, anyway, as always, we've got a lot to cover in this episode. We're going to be talking about the latest entry, number four in our top 25 RPG countdown. And I think it's one that everybody's been kind of waiting for. It's the other Final Fantasy on this list. And yes, it's the one on Super Nintendo, not Final Fantasy IV. <laughs> Final <laughs> Fantasy VI. Not that I have anything against Final Fantasy IV, by the way. No, me neither. I love it. Uh, but I actually, well, we'll talk about this when we get there. But just a little aside is I actually played six before four. Really? Yes. Me too. Ah, that should be fun. There you go. And we're also going to talk in honor of Final Fantasy VI. We're going to talk about RPG plot twists, which there are some really good ones in there. And we can talk a little bit about what makes a good plot twist, where it has worked, where it has maybe not worked, and things like that. But first, Acts of the Blood God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever. If you happen to be listening to this, say, on the show notes page. Uh, If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review on our iTunes page. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find uh, a link to that on our homepage, on the browser elsewhere. Uh, Every Wednesday, Nadia and I send out a little essay and a recap of all of the news in RPGs for the week. So if you want to stay connected to the Blood God, uh, the Blood God would love to have you uh, subscribe to our newsletter. Okay, so moving on really quickly before we get into the main topics of the day, Nadia. Uh, Last night, as of the recording of this podcast, Octopath Traveler for mobile was officially announced And I'm not entirely sure what the monetization model is going to be. Is it going to be free-to-play? All the uh, reports I'm seeing uh, and from Jamatsu, which is actually usually pretty good. uh, Is it Gamatsu or Jamatsu? I've been saying Jamatsu, so you're going to forgive me, anyone who's listening to this. All right, I forgive you. Thank you. Uh, They're usually good with their translations, and they're saying free-to-play. So I don't know. I just wrote a thing about this as well on the site. By the time, of course, this is recorded, you you can go read it. Uh, I don't know how they would monetize that, and I do know that um, I'm not a huge fan of free-to-play menu-based RPGs. Like, I gave uh, Final Fantasy Brave Exvius a good shake, and it just weirded me out a little bit too much. And so, even though I plan to give this Octopath game uh, a, a good shake, provided it comes west, uh, I don't know how long I'm going to sit there before I feel weirded out and bounce. Well, Brave Exvius is basically a Gashapon game, right? It, it totally, totally is. You basically, you can um, draw Final Fantasy characters, and even beyond that, I think there's also Secret of Mana and Crow and Trigger characters as well. Uh, I think when I played it, I ended up with three uh, Sabins. <laughs> three of Sabins. It was, it, I, I mean, I like Sabin, don't get me wrong, but it's just like... No, sorry, it was two Sabins and one Edgar. And I thought, is okay, it you know Sabin what? or Sabin? I always said Sabin. I always said it was Sabin. Okay, uh, view, uh, listeners, you're going to have to settle this one for this us. This is like my friend who called Sephiroth Sephiro. What the hell is <laughs> I, that? No, that is... And got very mad when I insisted that it was Sephiroth. <laughs> it's Sephiroth. It's like a variation of Sephiroth, which is, you know, from the Kabbalah. I'm pretty sure it's Sabin. Okay, so we're going to go with Sabin then. But either yeah. way, I had two of him. One had oh. no shirt and one had a shirt. Which one did you prefer? I bet I know which one. Yeah, shirtless Sabin. Nothing wrong with him. There you go. Yeah, I only have room enough in my life for one Gashapon game, and that's Fire Emblem Heroes, which 
<laughs> and that's mostly because, dang, those Gashapon games are expensive. They really are. And um, as for me, I only have room for, there's a Ragnarok Online mobile game that I love, and I play that. I haven't played in a while, but I've been a fan of Ragnarok Online since 2003. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, so yeah, I'm, you told me. Are you still playing that game? I don't play it on PC anymore, but I, I play it on mobile. There's a, The mobile different version's a little different, but uh, same idea, same universe, and I, I love the universe and the music. Final uh, Fire Emblem Heroes just released characters from Fire Emblem 6, The Binding Blade. That's the one with Roy. Oh, that's the one. So Binding Blade fans are going to be very happy because not only did they release uh, four new characters from Binding Blade, they also released a brand new version of Roy, Legendary Roy. So I don't care enough about Roy to want to go after him and his little fluffy red hair, but <laughs> I did uh, go out and pull uh, the main villain of Binding Blade, which is like this ancient dragon. I think her name's like Idun or something like that. Cool. So she has a blue eye and a green eye. Oh, okay. Or is it a red eye and a green eye? It's some anime. like, you know, the... The different colored eyes. She yeah, looks cool. of course. Because she's possessed by a dragon or something. I needed, I needed a new red dragon. I got one. So Yeah, Fire Emblem Heroes. So licensed to continue spending money. Which, by the way, if you keep an eye on the site next week, I um, have an interview with the developers for that game. Oh, cool. Looking forward to it. As for the mobile version of Octopath Traveler, it doesn't sound like it's going to be a Gashapon game per se. It sounds like it's going to be a lot closer to, say, the SNES ports of Dragon Quest V and things like that for mobile. So in that regard, I would think that perhaps Octopath Traveler wouldn't be too bad. Maybe the only microtransactions that you would see would be from a cosmetic standpoint. Yeah, I'm really wondering about that. Uh, I was thinking at first, okay, well, maybe they'll release it chapter by chapter. But then I realized, I don't think anybody does that anymore because people got really mad about downloading Mario Run, quote-unquote, for free and having to pay for subsequent chapters. Wasn't Final um, Fantasy XV mobile uh, chapter by chapter that went, ended up working okay? Maybe you're right about that. In fact, you might be right. So, uh, yeah, we we shall see because I don't see how this game, which has established characters... Uh, from what I can tell, would work as a Gashapon game. Who knows? Just keep introducing new characters. I don't know. Be like the Dahlia (laughs) Lost. (laughs) Instead of Octopath Traveler, we have whatever the hell Traveler. I'm surprised that it's a prequel, because I thought that it was just going to be a straight port. In which case, I was actually pretty excited, because I was like, oh, cool, I'll just put it onto my iPad, and that'll be a fun game that I can periodically pick up and play, because it's a little less of a barrier to entry than my Nintendo Switch. Mm -hmm. which I know sounds completely insane, but just roll with me on this one. (laughs) Okay, I trust you on it. But it's a prequel, I guess. So I I guess I don't need any prior knowledge of the story, but at the same time, it's kind of like, oh, I was kind of hoping that it would be the regular Octopath Traveler. Yeah, um, it seems to reuse a lot of the the assets from the first game, which is fine. Uh, In fact, the uh, director of Octopath Traveler tweeted to say more or less not in so many words, but this is kind of a stopgap before the sequel is ready. So it's, uh, I, I have no ill will towards this game. I just kind of had to make a point that free-to-play RPGs make me feel very strange. Uh, why Why exactly do they make you feel strange? Um, I don't know how much of Brave Exvius you played. And this is the same with, I believe, Grand Blue Fantasy, which is absolutely freaking huge. Uh, you have to deal with things like stamina bars in a uh, a game that otherwise looks and plays like a traditional RPG. 
And for some reason, I just can't mesh those those characteristics in my head, whereas I can accept it with, with puzzle games, for example, and even a strategy game like Fire Emblem Heroes. But just sitting there looking at, like, you know, SNES-style menus and knowing that there's a strategy uh, bar hanging over my head, it makes me feel very odd. I don't play games with stamina bars, and I know I say I'm saying uh, this about Fire Emblem Heroes. <laughs> yes, but Fire Emblem Heroes basically doesn't have a stamina bar anymore because oh, it doesn't. Not really, because I have so many stamina potions at this point. Ah, uh, yes. I have something like 250 stamina potions that basically a stamina bar doesn't exist. And yeah, I think I'm in the same spot. Most of the activities don't really take up any stamina at all. Yeah, yeah. And it all comes down to how generous the the creators of the game are, of course. There was another game, I forget what it was called, but I was really enjoying it for a while. It was a kind of a Gashapon game. Mm-hmm. In fact, it was a Gashapon game in which you built a party of characters and you would do a little dungeon crawl and then you could have arena battles against other and uh, players' parties and it was a really good time. But the stamina requirements were so strict yeah. That you could only make basically one run per day uh, wow. to the dungeon. Or maybe it was one run an hour or something like that. But it was uh-huh. still annoying because I wanted to play this of game. Course. And the second that it interrupted my my flow, as it were, I was like, well, I'm going to go play something else now. And of then course. I put it down. I forgot about it. Which is yeah. why like, I know that stamina bars make money, but it always seems ultimately self-defeating to me. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you played Dragalia Lost because that only yeah. just... Yeah, it only just finally came to Canada, and so um, I might. Oh, really? Give that finally a came to Canada. It finally came to Canada and other countries. For the longest time, it was just Japan and uh, the U.S. Hmm. Okay. Well, have you been playing it? No, I. I it's it's quite recent, so I've been people th- seem to like it. it a try. Yeah, some people some people really do like it quite a lot, and I like the you know it seems kind of cool. Like, hey, there's this mystical world with you and dragons, and it's like, yeah, I'll give it a. Uh, I'll give it a go. I know it's been having some issues with them, you know, struggling to get noticed, but um, that's something else. It's fine. It's something like the second highest uh, uh, grossing Nintendo game. Oh, is it? Uh, For mobile, yeah. Oh, and of course, talking about Nintendo and mobile, which uh, they don't really make a lot of money when they're. uh, They're doing fine. I mean, yeah, they're not making FU money like some of these other games, but King probably. They're probably still pulling in buckets of money. I mean, they're getting a a large cut of the of the money from Pokemon Go. Oh, are they? Oh, good for them. I mean, it's Nintendo. (laughs) Yeah, they they own it, so they're probably just like on a. Do they own it? I think the Pokemon Company owns it, but because I think Nintendo has a large stake in it. Exactly, that's it. So they they get basically money from Pokemon Go for doing... I know they helped out a bit with it, but they don't really do much now. Yeah. So I I think Nintendo's doing fine. There was an interesting story earlier this week where Nintendo was reportedly telling developers to back off on the microtransaction front because they don't want to be seen as greedy, which they should tell the Fire Emblem people to do that because (laughs) I feel like they're constantly throwing out banners. They, They don't put out enough real content. They just... They treat the release of new characters as content. Which, right. Uh, yeah, it's fun leveling these characters up, but I need something to do with them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was uh, really behind on story content, so I still have lots of that to catch up on, but I guess they haven't been introducing at no, a regular they pace. They, okay. I mean, they they release a new chapter every couple of weeks. No, that's not too bad. Plus, every time new characters come out, they release uh, some new maps to go along with them. Mm-hmm. There is a truly absurd amount of content in that game, actually. It's just I've run through almost all of it at this point. 
<laughs> give give Cat enough content, Nintendo. That's what we're coming down to here. More content. Yeah, I'll be watching King of the Hill and playing Fire Emblem Heroes. That's what a degenerate I am at this point. Uh, well, King of the Hill is a great show. King of the Hill is a great show. And now that I'm an adult, I appreciate it a lot more. Yeah, I bet I do too. I haven't watched it in a long time, but uh, I, I love it whenever I watch it. Yes. All right, Nadia, let's continue on to the main topic. And the main topic is plot twists. And the reason that I decided to make this the main topic of this episode was that, well, there was a pretty huge plot twist in Final Fantasy VI, isn't there? Uh, there kind of is, yes. The plot twist in Final Fantasy VI is uh, your attempts to save the world, at least initially, fall very, very flat. And Kefka rules the world, and he just completely destroys it. And it is your job to knock him down and give the chance a world to rebuild itself. Do you remember how you felt the first time that happened? Yes, I was very, very upset because I thought I had screwed up. uh, Really? You thought, oh, I could have saved the world, but now it's been destroyed. Yes, I thought, like, I have made a wrong choice somewhere, somehow. And it was made worse by the fact that I was not very good at RPGs at the time. So I was probably very underleveled for the floating continent. And I had a terrible time beating uh, the Atma weapon. So I didn't go back and save after I beat finally beat the stupid thing. Uh, and so I didn't want to turn off the, <laughs> the console and reset it. Not that it would have done me any good, but I thought maybe it would, and I didn't want to go through all that. So you were convinced that you had ruined your game. That's pretty yes. funny. I mean, yes, I, I was convinced of it. That's reasonable, actually. But Yeah. Square Enix really liked the whole destroying the world trope back then. They also did in Chrono Trigger. They did, although you could kind of, whenever you got, like, too depressed with that world, you could go back to the nice world. Yeah, that's true. And actually, the future was my least favorite world. I um, I love the music in the future, like, all of it, uh, and just how depressing it is. Like, Chrono Trigger is such a happy, nice game most of the time, but just going to the Keeper's Dome in uh, Chrono Trigger and finding the Epoch for the first time is it's just one of the saddest parts in pretty much any SNES RPG, I think. That part is cool. I just think that the bit in the early going in which you're in the sewers, and I consider the sewers, I think I, I consider sewers to be the absolute worst video mm. game locale. Yeah, same. There's so no worse locale than sewers. Nobody ever wants to be in sewers. It's dark and gross and smelly and claustrophobic, and the enemies are always kind of nasty as well, and Poisonous. you just can't wait to get through it. And there is a large sewer section in Chrono Trigger. There is. And you have to chase that stupid rat and get the password, as I recall. Yes. And so, finally... And then it also has one of the dumber sections of the game where you're kind of riding in the in the car, like the hover car, the race. Yeah, that was a, hey, look at our 16 bits right here. Yeah. It's like, why is this in here? Okay, y- you can easily cut this. Nice so, music. Once you go... The later bits, when you come back and you discover the connections to... um you know, the advanced civilization and mm-hmm. you get the epoch and everything. That stuff is really cool. And you're fine. Yeah, I, I still love uh, Climbing Death Peak is one of my favorites. Yes, that was also excellent. So I, I think it's just that particular section always held me up and kept me from beating Chrono Trigger for a long time. Yeah, I don't blame you. That is a bit of a bear. Uh, but as for Final Fantasy VI, the way I felt the first time I saw the end of the world was shock. Um mm-hmm. I didn't really know what to do or what to make of what was going on because all of a sudden everybody was dead. <laughs> and, yeah. 
<laughs> yes. Like you have this huge final battle. It feels like it's going to be the final battle of the game. Yes. You're on this floating continent. You're confronting the Emperor Gestal and uh, Kefka. And then all of a sudden, everything goes horribly wrong. And it's just Celeste and Sid. And mm-hmm. me being me, I fed him the poison fish and he died. Yeah, me, me too. And yeah. then it was just Celeste and she's standing on that cliff and she throws her off. And I thought I was extremely depressed and upset <laughs> after that moment. Well, it was kind of, it's not exactly the happiest moment in video game history, is it? She was killing herself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Even though- I, I felt so bad for killing Sid, and I didn't realize for the longest time that you could bring him. When I learned that you could bring him back, I felt even worse. Yeah, even though what really cheeses me off is saving him doesn't do anything. So I've never actually saved Sid. Like, what happens? Does he just go, thank you? He does. I swear to God, he does. He's like, thank you. I'll show you the, the thing I've been working on. He shows you the raft, right? So you, you know, you leave. and But before you leave... Celeste is like, oh, I'll bring you back my friends. I'll show you my friends. And he's like, oh, I can't wait to meet this lock fellow you've been talking about. And so you bring them back, and he doesn't say anything different. <laughs> I can't wait to meet your friends. They're right here. They're right here. You're looking at them. Are you Are okay? Are you feeling okay? So the reason I think that the World of Ruin twist works is that it, it's a genuinely shocking twist, but it doesn't feel like it came completely out of nowhere. It mm-hmm. mostly ups the stakes and yes. gives Kefka a chance to be truly evil. It does, yes. And uh, it really shakes up the how you play the game uh, and the midway point of the game. Because if you haven't built up Celeste until that point, well, guess what you've got to do? She's on her own for a while, and that's, uh, that's, that's quite a journey for her. She starts out relatively strong anyway. She, yeah, she does get bumped up a few levels. Yeah. When I, I remember, and not only that, but when you're walking through the world of Ruin, uh, I mean, it's obviously, everybody knows it's a lot more open and everything. You mentioned how it completely shakes up the way that you actually play. Um, so it gives you just a chance to enjoy the world in a very different light. So it's it's fun. It was, it was a very clever twist for the mm-hmm. time, and I feel like it's become kind of a benchmark for what a good RPG plot twist can kind of look like, at least in JRPGs. Yeah, I agree. And it kind of gave Final Fantasy VI, like, this distinct sense of uh, scope. It made it feel that much more epic that the world actually ends. And then there's Kafka on top of his tower, like, wrecking everything. Yeah, and I also really like the fact that the Empire, which is, like, this huge problem you have in the first half of the game, becomes practically nothing in the second half. And you even see, like, abandoned Magitek armor hanging around in, in the towns and people laughing about it, saying, well, like, wasn't it funny when the Empire was our biggest problem? Yeah, that's the other thing, is that it the game kind of sets up for a huge portion of it to make the Emperor seem like the biggest bad guy, but mm-hmm. actually it's Kefka. And so that's makes it kind of a double twist, as the world not only ends, which is a surprise, especially for what we were expecting from video games at the time, but also we get to see that, oh, no, Kefka was truly the the true villain all along. Yeah, and he, he throws the Emperor, like, off the continent. And I'm like, uh, is he going to be okay? <laughs> it would be like if Darth Vader threw the Emperor <laughs> off the, the platform. I was like, ah, Darth Vader, you're safe. No, son. I am totally going to rule the Empire now. Mwahahaha. And then the Death Star turns around, nukes the entire fleet. And then it's like, oh, well, that was a depressing end to the Return of the Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> so nadia thinking about the final fantasy 6 twists made me want to kind of go over and see like 
what other twists exist in the world of RPGs. And it turns out a lot. Mm-hmm. Like if you go over to the Tales games, tons of twists. I have no idea what most of those twists actually mean because I don't <laughs> really care for the Tales games that much, but there are a lot of plot twists in them. Uh, I feel like for a lot of RPGs, especially a lot of Japanese RPGs, plot twists are just like obligatory. Yeah, they they are. They definitely um, they definitely like their plot twists, which I'm okay with because I I love myself a good plot twist, even even the you know obvious ones that come out of you know right in front of your face. Oh, it's very anime in that it is. I mean, what anime or manga? They would be these serialized stories, right? And yeah. how do you keep people? rooted to their seat and then super engaged right you suddenly have a hero become a villain or a villain become mm-hmm. a hero it's very so it's very soap opera right how do you shake very up the status opera, quo yes. oh look he was a villain all along it's very well japan loves his wrestling too i was gonna say it's very wrestling as well the heel face turn the heel face turn i did it face heel turn <laughs> you did it yay you're officially a wrestling fan no <laughs> <laughs> people keep sending us that picture of the guy waving the sign that says final fantasy 8 was underrated yes <laughs> it's like sea cat someone agrees with you i agree with that sign that's uh, because there was someone with a final fantasy 8 suck sign a little while back uh, shout out to uh, rex dixon who used to be the one of the creative directors on madden who is a giant jrpg fan and sometimes we correspond over dm and he uh, pointed that out to me and he said no final fantasy 8 is terrible and i'm like what are you talking about rex what are you talking about? <laughs> Poor cat lives in her own world where Final Fantasy VIII is just magical. I I didn't say that it was just magical. I just like it. It's fine. It's a good game. Yeah, it's it's okay. <laughs> I'm gonna it's make fine. you play it someday, Nadia. Like I said, you know what? If it comes out on the Switch, I'll, I'll I'm all for it. So Final Fantasy itself has had a lot of twists over the years. I mean, obviously everybody knows about Era stabbing, Era stabbing Cloud. <laughs> Sephiroth no, stabbing Aerith. Uh, Final Fantasy IV had one of the big ones. It was Gobas is actually the brother of Cecil. Surprise! Surprise, yes. And I'll be honest, even though I played Final Fantasy IV after Final Fantasy VI, I still thought that was kind of cool. And Final Fantasy always loved to trot out the surprise villains. Mm-hmm. And then there, yeah, was, there was a ton of twists in Final Fantasy X, where you were finding out about Jekt and the nature of Sin and the fact that Yuna has to die... And all of those things. But that that felt more like, that felt less like, oh, what a twist. And more like just steady escalation of the stakes. Yeah, th- there is a difference, isn't there? I suppose so. As opposed to just having the rug completely pulled out from under mm-hmm. you. Here's an example exactly. of the rug completely being tur- pulled out from under you. Star Ocean till the end of time. Okay, did you ever play this one, Nadia? No, I did not. Okay, so in Star Ocean Till the End of Time, it's kind of your bog-standard uh, fantasy RPG, but it's in space. Okay. And I forget what the actual plot was, because it was honestly kind of boring. But there <laughs> gets to a certain point, and this is kind of interesting, where you enter 4D space. Ooh. Okay? And you discover that our ga- ga- our galaxy, our reality, is basically an MMORPG for these 4D space beings. No, my goodness gracious. And it's kind of a case of, what? <laughs> people <laughs> people really ridiculed that one. We're just like, oh, oh we live, our galaxy is a holodeck. Yeah, um, I actually, when I was first starting out as a writer, I wrote a story where, about like this post-apocalyptic uh, landscape and, you know, aliens and all this other dumb crap. And it turns out the twist was, 
the whole thing was taking place in a, a Sim City game that had been abandoned. And the editor threw that thing back in my face fast enough for it to ignite. And I don't blame him. Because it's kind of a lazy plot twist? Yeah, yeah. It what was a, a twist. dumb plot twist. Well, I mean, it's <laughs> it's just adjacent of it was all a dream. Exactly. And it, in, when I was in grade two, my teacher said, you don't write, it's all a dream, or I'm automatically giving you an F. Well, when you were in grade two, that was probably right around the time that the Roseanne uh, season had turned out to be all of a dream. Oh, God. Like There was also that season of Dallas when they wanted to bring yes. back uh, the one character. Yes, you, that was a that was the big twist too. You want to talk about soap operas? Like those are a couple of good examples right there. Mm-hmm. It was all a dream. Uh, the thing that's interesting about the Star Ocean till the end of time twist, which by the way, like it kind of plays into the plot, but it doesn't add a lot. I don't think <laughs> it feels a little lazy. Uh, you know that there's actually a simulation hypothesis that our universe is actually a simulation. Yeah, but I could say our our universe is made up of unicorn farts and i could technically be right no one can really prove it i don't know i mean they actually come up with sort of a logical uh expression of why that might be the case which is essentially if there are post-human people then chances are there would be at least a chance that they would be interested in wanting to run quote-unquote ancestor simulations and that we would therefore be the the sims <laughs> I feel like every twist in this nature has been done earlier and better by Twilight Zone. I suppose. I mean, there was an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation in which they had the little cube and said, uh, mm. what if our world is a holodeck just like in this like little cube right here that I put Moriarty? <laughs> this is why my parents, whenever they like watch Next Generation, they saw it was a holodeck episode, they turn it off. <laughs> that was a good episode, actually. Uh, the thing that I find interesting is it does at times feel like our galaxy or universe is kind of spinning out of control. Yeah, and I guess technically it is. It's always expanding. It almost it almost feels like somebody played around with the controls and started having absolutely insane, improbable things start to happen. Yeah, and then they walked away before Mom got mad, and they so, kind of left it. See, so my proof uh, that the universal like constant has been changed or something, or the, the, the statistical likelihoods have been played around with, and this is out all of an experiment, is the fact that Leicester City won the English Premier League. <laughs> and it was something ridiculous, like a million-to-one shot. And I, I forget what the actual betting odds were, but they were so ridiculous because people thought they were going to get relegated, and mm-hmm. teams just don't win the Premier League. Leicester City, teams outside of the top six just don't win the Premier League. And certainly not teams that are relegation-bound. And so the fact that they actually won the Premier League is still probably the most insane story I've ever seen in sports, period. Well, I'm convinced. There you go. It's just proof that we live in a holodeck. Star Ocean, till the end of time, was right. Oh, well, we apologize to you, Star Ocean. (laughs) Uh, Here's another one for you, Nadia. Mm. Uh, Knights of the Old Republic. You are Darth Revan. Now, this is a really famous one. Mm-hmm. And this one's pretty interesting because in it, you're chasing a, uh, you know, a Sith Lord and everything. And you've heard about this character, Darth Revan. And then you discover that you are Darth Revan. And it kind of reminds me of a Babylon 5 episode called uh, Garden of Gethsemane, which is about a, he's a monk mm-hmm. in a, a cast or a group in a, on board the station. He's a very nice guy. And it turns out that he was a serial killer. Oh, dear. And had his memory wiped. 
mm-hmm. and his personality completely changed, and he was sent to this um, this group to basically work in a monastery and do good for society. And it mm. opens up all of these different questions about, is this ethical? And then, right. of course, at a certain point, the family finds him, and he has and he has to make the decision: does he run, or does he basically co- let them take the revenge and atone for his crimes? And he ultimately does let them. Uh, mm-hmm. He does ultimately let them take the revenge, and he dies, which is a sad oh. thing. And so it also talks a little bit about redemption. And I don't think Knights of the Re- Old Republic really deals with any of that necessarily. <laughs> But it does open kind of an interesting can of worms, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it does. And you know what's interesting is um, you telling me that episode summary reminds me very much of there's um, a very underlooked uh, extension of the Professor Layton universe uh, called uh, Layton Brothers Mystery Room. It was for mobile only, as far as I know. And that stars Professor Layton's son, who is completely off his rocker. And you have, he has two personalities. One where he's, you know, this very nice, placid man. And then he has one where he's completely violent and unhinged and bloodthirsty. And you play the game thinking that, oh, he's usually this nice, nice gentle man who sometimes has these bad episodes where he turns into, you know, this this freakish monster. But no, you find out, this is the twist, that his normal personality is the bloodthirsty maniac. His He's had some sort of hypnosis or something that lets him revert to the, the nice personality once in a while. Oh. And I am so mad that game never got any more of his, any any sequels or any follow ups because I really enjoyed the hell out of it. Thanks, level. This is five. Professor Layton's. What's that? Thanks, level five. Oh yeah, yeah. It's no kidding, because this is Professor Layton's son, Professor Mr. Top Hat, Mr. I have a puzzle. Your wow. your son's a crazy man. <laughs> oh, that's messed up. <laughs> it really was. It was a great. G- it, it's. I think it's still on the the app store. Buy it if you can. Yeah, so I really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, I mean, it gets to the question of, uh, who are you? What it, Exactly. Who is the mask, right? Mm-hmm. Who is Jekyll? Who is Hyde? Yeah. Uh, here's another one for you, Nadia. In Earthbound, Pokey is the villain. Yes. Um, that's also another thing, another uh, instance, though, where I think it's not just the rug being pulled out from under you. It's more of that escalation. Because uh, Pokey... Every time something bad's going down in the universe, you find out Pokey is behind it, and you're always kind of one step behind him. And then, so it, it kind of makes sense that he is the um, evil, he is partnered with the the evil destroying entity. Yeah, he's kind of a jerk in the beginning, too. So you just kind of, He's it, a dick. He's a total dick, so it just totally makes <laughs> sense that he'd be the villain. Yeah, although in Mother 3, it was more of a twist. Yeah. You just did not expect to see him, and by this point, uh, he is just this... Well, you've seen the way he looks in that game. He's completely wasted away to practically nothing because he's been time-traveling so much that he's can barely hold himself together. Ugh. And his his end is kind of, like, very, very dark. Basically, when you finally get him down to his last uh, bit of health, he summons this thing that a Dr. Andonet's made for him called the, a completely safe capsule. And it's like, once he's in this capsule... You can't get out. Sorry, you can't get in. Nothing can hurt him, but he can't get out. He is there for the rest of his life, and he's pretty much immortal, even though he's uh, a total mess. So he's trapped there, and he must scream. Wow, that's really messed up. See, this is why people like Earthbound and Mother, because they are extremely dark games, despite having a really healthy and strange sense of humor. Yeah, but particularly Mother 3. Yeah. Yeah, finding out that Pokey is the villain in 
Earthbound kind of reminds me of finding out who the real killer is in Persona 4. It's very kind of, it's not Scooby-Doo, but it's kind of, when you figure out who the the killer is, kind of go, I mean, there has to be at least one more twist. And there are at least a couple more twists beyond that. Yeah, there really are. Like you, uh, it's not as straightforward as it seems. No, definitely not. Though I can never remember who the true, true villain actually is. Uh, some angel is pissed off. Pissed off angels. That's always what it comes down to in Persona. You get the cool reveal, and then you get the the pissed off angel, who's like always like, oh, I must test humanity. Okay, great, you pass by. Very Japanese RPG kind of thing. Very. All right, the last one I kind of want to mention is, I, I think this is a famous one. Maybe this is an example of a bad plot twist in a video game. And that would be the catalyst in Mass Effect 3. So, oh, did you ever yes. get around to playing Mass Effect, Nadia? No, but uh, I seem to remember what the... I, I know about some of the twists and the... And let me tell you, Nadia, got people mad. you should play in Mass Effect because I think you'd really like it. I probably would. As I've said before, I love Star Control, so I really should. Mass Effect 1, 2, and 3 are totally worth playing. And I don't think it's anything like Star Control, actually. Oh, okay. Uh, just the, the whole the world-building element of it, I mean. Ah, uh, fair enough. So, yeah, in the original Mass Effect... You learn about these creatures called Reapers, and Reapers basically are there to destroy the universe. Uh, They're cleansing our galaxy. Right. So organics get too big, here come the Reapers every X number of times, and then they destroy you. They can do some pretty horrifying things. Um, We learn about what they did to the last advanced race, and it ain't pretty, let me tell you Mm -hmm. that much. And so you're kind of like, oh, wow, I mean, like these extra galactic creatures are just completely unstoppable and terrifying and how are we going to beat this how are we going to rally together and stop them it seems as if bioware wrote themselves into a corner (laughs) (laughs) which happens because they introduced at the 11th hour this character called the catalyst who comes up with an entirely different origin story for the reapers than basically what you've heard before that ends up contradicting a huge amount of the original Mass Effect, which seems to have only been because they realized that the Reapers were too strong, and so you couldn't just beat them, you know, with a super weapon. But also they wanted to give you a chance to make one last choice, except that the last choice that you made was basically irrespective of all the choices that you've made before it. Right. Right. They, it was a case of Hello writing themselves into a corner, and it really cheesed off a lot of Mass Effect fans. Yeah, that much I remember. I have uh, a couple of friends who still haven't forgiven uh, Bioware over that whole thing. Well, that's what happens when you just get a little too ambitious for your own good. And you're like, no, yeah. we're going to introduce plot points that are going to carry over from Mass Effect 1 to Mass Effect 3, and they're going to be all of these branching things. Ah, just kidding. <laughs> it okay, was too hard to sorry writing is hard programming is hard making games is hard you get a catalyst i bet people i bet they could do it though i bet cd project red could have carried it off yeah it just sounds like they uh, as you say they got a little bit too a little bit too big sometimes sometimes outlines count like cd project in which are two of the decisions that you made in the first half of the game could result in a totally different second half than from the first like, that was how ambitious they were. Yeah, but where it did, like, you make decisions in Witcher 1 that carried over to Witcher 2? Uh, I believe that you could connect Witcher 2 to Witcher 3. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, I could be wrong. Um, maybe if you played Witcher 2 on Xbox 360, mm. uh, the decisions that you had made in Witcher 2 get referenced in Witcher 3. Oh, okay. That's still kind of neat. Yeah. And then 
Witcher 2 gets brought up quite a bit um, with Geralt and all of them. But somebody said mm-hmm. something recently that really resonated with me. I think it was when I was writing the article about Bioware's like kind of steady decline over the past 10 years or whatever. Mm-hmm. Somebody said that CD Projekt came in and did Bioware better than Bioware ever did. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, CD Projekt Red kind of came in and did a lot of things better than a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, that's why Witcher 3 is so good. I think I, I'm not too upset over the way that they ultimately decided to resolve the story because I was never that invo- invested in the story of Mass Effect. Mm-hmm. But I can see I why a lot, a lot of people, people were. were pissed off about it. Yeah, a lot of people were just very angry about that. I remember. I remember that whole drama. Yeah, and I think the main problem was just that we we keep using this term, we pulled the rug out of, from a, uh, under everybody in introducing mm-hmm. this last second twist that just completely undid a lot of the very meticulous world building from the past two games. Yeah, um, I guess like I didn't really relate at the time because not, on- not only did I not play the game, but also I read so many novels that like, gave you bullshit endings. Like, have you ever read the original Handmaid's Tale? Nope, it's too depressing. That has a bullshit ending. Yeah, it's a, it was part of our grade 12 curriculum if you want, like, a, one hell of a, a book to study in school. I won't watch the TV show either because I'm depressed enough by the real world. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't recommend it. Uh, it's good, but it's very depressing. But yeah, the, um, at least the TV show kind of continues a lot of where the, the book left off because the book just decided, I guess Margaret Atwood was like, okay, we're done. I'm like, you just gave me a huge twist right here. You're just going to stop? I think and she's she going to write a sequel though, right? She is, yes, or a prequel. A prequel, yes. Oh, well, man, that's even more depressing. I know. Good times, huh? No, not good times. <laughs> Terrible times. All right, what's your favorite video game or RPG twist, I suppose? Uh, we would love to hear. Drop me a line at cat.bailey.yohostgamer.net, or my DMs are open, or leave a comment in our show notes. Okay. Let's continue on to the top 25 RPG countdown, number four, Final Fantasy VI. All right, Nadia, our top 25 RPG countdown continues. And I said, we are down to number four. We're within the top five, and it's another JRPG. This one for the Super Nintendo. It is Final Fantasy VI. Final Fantasy VI, of course, I think needs no introduction, certainly not to this audience. It is I don't think so. one of the seminal RPGs on the Super Nintendo or elsewhere. It holds up extremely well. It is incredibly beloved. And... <laughs> It's sort of hard to say new things about this game because I feel like we've even talked about it at some length on this podcast. I went on to Retronauts a while ago and did a very mm-hmm. long podcast about it a while oh, cool. ago. But yeah, Lucky I mean, you. it's kind of well-covered ground for a reason because everybody freaking played it and loved it. <laughs> yeah, but people still love talking about it and people still love listening about it and reading about it, I find. Yeah, Final Fantasy VI, I believe I've said on this podcast, was... <laughs> Truly the RPG, the game that got me into RPGs. It, it was a turning point for me, a major one. Yeah, uh, it was a major turning point for me as well. I had uh, just kind of fallen in love with Secret of Mana, and I said, oh, cool, what else does Square Enix have for me? And at that point, like, very quickly afterwards, they're like, hey, we have this game called Final Fantasy III. And I was not a Final Fantasy fan at the time because I did not like Final Fantasy on the NES. I found it too too unpolished, too buggy. 
uh, too clunky. It, it was a difficult game to try out after I had spent a lot of time with Dragon Warrior 3. So I just kind of bounced off anything to do with Final Fantasy for a very long time until I, you know, when I played uh, Secret of Mana, I realized, okay, you know what, maybe Square really does know what it's doing. And uh, it was a good choice. Yeah, I think I've said that I played Final Fantasy Legend before I got to Final Fantasy VI, weirdly enough, but I guess I didn't really think of that as an RPG per se. Mm. Interesting. And in the the run-up to Final Fantasy VI, I played a lot of games like TIE Fighter and Free Space and the Blizzard games like War, uh, Warcraft III. Um, mm-hmm. But I did not play RPGs, and I found the idea of turn-based RPGs to be a little unnerving, too many stats, mm. that kind of thing. A friend of mine made me play Super Mario RPG at one point, but I guess I didn't really think of that as an RPG. But when I was in high school, I was working for a KFC, and one of my coworkers had two Super Nintendos and said that they would give me one of them for free. Wow. Yeah, it was very nice of them. So I went and fetched it. I I skipped school. (laughs) Nice. Went and fetched the Super Nintendo, brought it home. And I was like, well, I need a game to play on this. And I want it to be a nice, long game, a game that will keep me Mm. busy. Well, I've read about this game called Final Fantasy VI, Nintendo Power. I don't know anything about it or much of anything at all about Final Fantasy, but I should always, I guess I should pick it up. And of course, I knew it as Final Fantasy III. Found it at Mm -hmm. the local Funko Land for 50 bucks and uh, brought it home and totally enjoyed it. Uh, Really, 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 really enjoyed it. And... This yeah. was well after Final Fantasy VII came out. I think Final Fantasy VIII was even out at this point, so this must have been around. Oh, so you really came in late. Yeah, so it must have been around 1999 or something like that. And my friend who had gotten into Final Fantasy VII first kind of scoffed a little bit and was like, ah, oh, Final <laughs> Fantasy VI. I got, I got bored with that one. Final Fantasy VII is where it's at. But I really enjoyed Final Fantasy VI. And as soon as I finished VI, I was like, well, I got to play VII. And so I played seven, and of course, seven just completely blew my mind into a million pieces, but that's a different mm-hmm. story entirely. It's funny that you mentioned Funko Land, because I got my copy at Canadian Tire, which is a hardware store. What? Uh, for some reason, they used to sell video games. And I've told this story before, or at least I've written about it, so I, I pardon anyone who's listening to this yet again. My father went to go pick up the game for me, because I was doing something else, and... Uh, it was a really expensive game because talking about Canadian exchange plus tax, it was over a hundred bucks. And uh, I gave my dad the money, but the cashier who was like bagging the game said, "Oh, this must be for a very special person." And my dad said, "Nah." <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the thing, the thing about Canadian Tire is, uh, if you go there and spend money, you get a, a small percentage of your purchase back in what's called Canadian Tire money, and it's basically fake money that you can use at Canadian Tire. So since Final Fantasy 3 was like over 100 bucks. My dad like hit the jackpot with Canadian Tire money. He was like, I'm keeping this. I'm like, sure, I got Final Fantasy 3. I don't care. But thinking back, I'm like, ah, oh, I could have used that money. The thing that's interesting about Final Fantasy 6 is that it was a pretty big turning point for Squaresoft at the time because this was when Hironobu Sakaguchi kind of moved up the, the corporate mm-hmm. ladder, as it were, and a new kind of generation started to come up. And this is when T- Tetsuya Nomura started to make his presence felt, for example, yes, with uh, certain characters. This is when guys like Yoshinori Katase became a very big part of the series. And so Final Fantasy VI is where we truly begin to see where Final Fantasy VI is headed and where Squaresoft is headed. And first, mm-hmm. I mean, you could say that's for the better and for the worse. Like, it's tremendously influential in that way, but... 
you can see similarities in Final Fantasy V, but Final Fantasy VI, I would say, has more in common with Final Fantasy VII than any of the other games that came before it. Yeah, thinking about that, um, I called uh, Final Fantasy VII recently, I called it kind of a, a gritty, industrial-looking game, and for much of it, it is. Uh, Midgar steampunk. It looks like that. Yes, but Final Fantasy VI, uh, the, the town of Vector, which belongs to the Empire, like their whole empire actually is very steampunk, so it started there. Yes, I agree. So, And then the thing with Final Fantasy VI is obviously kind of a lot like Dragon Quest VI uh, for Enix. Uh, Final Fantasy VI was a kind of late in the Super Nintendo's lifespan. I mean, I guess 1994 mm-hmm. was mid to late, uh yeah getting there mid to late and they really just the difference in the graphical leap between final fantasy 5 and 6 is just ridiculous it really is and uh even more so like final fantasy 4 versus final fantasy 6 it's just mind-blowing yeah it's so detailed i think i mentioned earlier that final fantasy 6 i played before final fantasy 4 i tried to go back to final fantasy 4 and it was quite difficult yeah, it did take me a bit of an adjustment period to get back into Final Fantasy IV, especially since Final Fantasy VI had a really excellent translation and really excellent characters, and Final Fantasy IV's translation was pretty, pretty bad. Define really so, excellent translation. Um, It depends. It's such a controversial translation because Ted Woolsey is uh, the, the person who translated that game, and I feel like he... um doesn't get enough credit for really making the story as accessible as he did. He just added so much color to it. Like, he was... If we didn't know what localization was versus translation in the day, uh, we know he was responsible for a big part of it. And um, you either love him or you hate him, but I, I love him because he just really brought that world to life for me. Now, saying that, I know that his translation was less than optimal because uh, he was really rushed... He translated a lot of stuff out of context. There are a lot of bugs, of course. God knows Final Fantasy VI has those. Uh, as usual, uh, Clyde Tomato Mandolin has this excellent series that compares the Woolsey's translations with uh, the more, like, uh, actually all the translations available, uh, including the Game Boy Advance one, which was cleaned up and and kept, like, uh, Woolsey's uh, charm in it. So I, I totally understand it's not a perfect translation by any means, but... Um, I still think it was better than Final Fantasy VII's translation. I think the reason that Final Fantasy VI resonates so heavily with people is that in Final Fantasy IV, it was a very straightforward, very linear game. And mm. I don't want to use linear as a bad word, but it just kind of really spoke to where console RPGs were at that time, where it had very established characters, often the party died combos were chosen for you yes they were uh and you were playing through the story and this was a novel thing for sure on console but it was a far cry from what we were getting on say pcs right Mm -hmm. i think the same year that final fantasy 4 came out on the super nintendo or maybe maybe a year later ultima 7 Mm -hmm. came out on the pc and it was a bit of a discrepancy. Yeah, it was a huge discrepancy. And if you play yeah. PC RPGs, you're used to the ultimate games, you're used to the Bard's Tale, uh, you're used to roguelikes and that kind of thing. These games that were far more open and far uh, more in the D&D tradition of being able, letting you tell your own story, as it were. Right. And I think Final Fantasy VI, while still fairly straightforward and still much more in the JRPG tradition, 
also took the limiters off and gave you the freedom to explore this really densely packed and interesting world. And in that respect, it, mm-hmm. I think, holds up for a lot of people because it ties in much more directly into the popular sandboxes of today. Yeah. Um, thinking back, there was actually quite a bit you could do in Final Fantasy VI that you were completely expected to discover on your own. Uh, for example, I'm still proud of the fact I found Gogo and Umaro by myself by simply uh, observing the land around me and saying, oh, what will happen if I do this? Or what would happen if I do that? And I would, for example, I went to the Zone Eater Island and noticed like this big stupid sandworm was kind of eating my party one by one. I'm like, I'm feeling suicidal today. What will happen if this sandworm eats my whole party? So he eats my whole party and I discover this whole secret dungeon under there. And that's where you find Gogo, on, and that was a real thrill for me. I thought that was amazing. Yeah, that was the part where Square was start trying to increase playability, replayability, because as we discussed with the Suikoden 2 uh, review, mm-hmm. uh, replayability was a big deal in these days because there was no DLC, so you'd finish the game and you'd be like, well, that's that, and people would be like, I didn't get my money's worth for this game. What the heck? So, yeah. and given that Final Fantasy VI was like 90 bucks when it came out, jeez. Uh, yeah, no kidding. It made people like have packing in all of these secrets made it feel like made people feel like they were getting that much more bang for their buck. I think another reason that Final Fantasy VI resonated with people and still resonated today was that, in many respects, it was very dark and mm-hmm. it really didn't pull punches, and it still had that anime feel to it, especially the death of General Leo, for example. But, no. I mean, one of the most famous sequences, of course, is Cyan's family is murdered. Oh, yeah, that was pretty crazy. Uh, not just murdered, but poisoned. That whole castle was just poisoned by Kefka, and that was one of the real um, signs that he was, a, he was a bit of a dick. A murdering madman. <laughs> murdering madman, yeah. And that was actually kind of a surprising sequence for me because, um, yes, it was the Empire. Yes, they're supposed to be evil. But as I recall, that whole uh, scene where... Sabin, I'm still gonna call him Sabin. I'm Sabin. sorry. Sabin, or Sabin, or Sabin, and Shadow are kind of trying to sneak through the Imperial camp and are spying on what people are saying. Uh, that's when it becomes apparent uh, that the Empire is not all evil. I mean, it's evil, but its people and its uh, soldiers uh, are are just regular people who are, um, you know. And General Leo is a, is an honorable leader, and it's as soon as Kafka suggests, hey, I can take care of this problem no pro- in, like, one snap, no no issue, uh, Leo tells him, don't you dare. And, of course, the second Leo turns his back, he poisons the river, after all. But uh, Leo also tells a soldier, like, don't rush on Doma, which they were trying to invade at the time. He said, don't rush on Doma because, you know, I don't want to tell your family that you got killed. So seeing that kind of thing in a, in a, in a JRPG at the time, which at that until that point had always kind of dealt with evil empire versus the good people... That was a little bit surprising for me. Yeah, I think General Leo definitely resonated with people because he wasn't evil. And so he added just a little bit of a layer of uh, moral complexity to the whole equation until, of course, Kafka murders the hell out of him. Yeah, and you know what really pisses me off about that is uh, you get like two seconds with the guy. You get to play as him, and he he's just a real badass. And at that point in the game... He's done with the Empire. He's completely disillusioned. You're like, oh, man, this, gonna, this guy's going to be on my party. This is going to be so sweet. And then he dies. And the, a lot of people speculate that he was supposed to be actually staying in the party. Uh, because if you hack him in 
to your party, he will appear in the final scene, like, as one of the characters comp- confronting Kafka. Oh, really? Does he say anything the way the others do? I don't know about that. I do know, oh. however, I, I do s- suspect, however, that what actually ended up happening was that either maybe they ran out of time to actually develop mm-hmm. the character, or they just were like, oh, this is kind of a dead end, and eh, screw it. <laughs> and- yeah, and he was... Uh- Maybe they made him severely OP after the fact, but he was severely OP. He was pretty severely OP, and he was cool, too. He was he was super cool. I liked his look. He had that, like, kind of, you know, dark skin, blonde mohawk going on, big mustache. This is the part where Final Fantasy VI was also the game where Square started leaning really heavily into the sci-fi aspect of the series. Like, mm-hmm, it had always definitely. been there, going back to maybe the original Final Fantasy yeah, And in Final Fantasy IV, obviously, you know, you went to the moon, you rode the whale ship, you had the hovercraft, that kind of thing. Uh, the giant statue that can, like, walk around. But in that Final Fantasy cool. VI, you're, like, full steampunk, right? I mean, it was yeah. definitely a, a real change in the overall look of the game. Yeah, and um, I think it, uh, it, it's, it adds, like, a lot of color to the world, uh, which is a funny thing to say, because when you get to Vector, it's all very kind of gray and metallic. But uh, as someone who uh, was so used to RPGs at the time being very fantasy-based, uh, it was it was a nice change for me. I th- one thing that stands out to me about Final Fantasy VI is probably has the best dungeons in the series. I don't, I don't think that any of the dungeons afterward ever kind of came close to touching, say, the complexity of the Magitech Factory. Oh, the Magitech Factory was fantastic, and the uh, the music was just, you know, balls-to-the-wall amazing. Yeah, and there was a minecart chase and everything, and... There were always... God, it looked horrible. <laughs> there were always, like, multiple... <laughs> there were multiple, like, tough bosses to fight, and... Yes. I'm, I mean, unless you exploited the glitches, but whatever. <laughs> I still uh, love the floating continent. I love the music there. I love the, you know, going through the tubes to uh, get to the Atma weapon. Uh, the only dungeon I really don't like in that game is the Phoenix Cave. Yeah? Uh, I, find it, I find it such a freaking hassle to divide into three. Uh, I do love Kefka's Tower, though. That's one of my favorites of all time. That was a tough one. That was a tough one, but I just, again, the music was fantastic, and just the puzzles you solved together. Uh, for some reason, I think it worked better. It's, no, and it's than, time uh, limited, too, right? No, it's not time limited. Uh, which one is time limited? Uh, that is a good question. Oh, at the end of the um, at the of the floating continent, when it's all falling no, no, no. apart. In the world of Ruin, there is a tower. Oh, I think I know what you're talking about. Um I think I was confusing it with the cultist tower, which... Yeah, I don't think... Yeah, you climb to the top uh, to find a treasure, and there are no save points along the way, so... Oh, fuck that tower. And the holy dragon is there as well? Yes, there's the holy dragon. I think that's one of the aspects that's really cool about this game, is that even though you can be extremely OP, there are a lot of, like, fun and interesting quests to find. Yeah, there are. Um, The cultist tower in particular, uh, again, which has fantastic music is, um, as I recall correctly, you can't use weapons. You can only use magic attacks. And uh, that boss at the top of that tower gave me the worst time because I had no idea how Life 3 worked. Oh. And he, he uses Ultima to wipe out your party. No matter, he gets the last laugh no matter what happens. He uses Ultima and you all die. Uh, so instead of learning what Life 3 does like a, like a natural person would, I sat there and I grinded my party up to, like, the point where it could survive a hit from Ultima, which was a stupid high number. And, of course, when I finally went to go beat Kefka, he, like, I flicked my finger and he went down. <laughs> Kefka, I mean, 
Kefka was a great boss, a great final boss, right? And really set the stage for Sephiroth. And I would say that, I don't know, what do you think? Is Ke- So Kefka was three stages, definitely yes. memorable from a story, a music standpoint, because Dancing yes. Mad is considered one of the great final boss themes. But yes. which which one is the final better final boss battle, Kefka or Sephiroth? Um, I'm gonna go with Kefka, uh, because I find that the, the three tower thing and, like, its allusion to Dante's Inferno is just still really, really neat. And just the musical wizardry they did with the cartridge back in, back then just still blows my mind. And I find thematically it's just really interesting the way you kind of ascend that tower and Kafka's at the top as literally God. And, uh, even though Kafka himself, like, dies really a little too easily for my, for my liking, I find that, um, Sephiroth and uh, Sephiroth is a, is a little bit tedious to go up against because he uses uh, Supernova, which takes like 12 minutes every single damn time. I you can't skip it. I prefer Sephiroth. Just, Do you? Yes, because I think that while the battle against Kefka is gorgeously realized, mm-hmm. as it slowly but steadily moves up and has incredible music and everything, uh, it's not actually that challenging or that interesting, ultimately. It's certainly not compared to some of the other bosses, and you can get through it pretty quickly. I mean, or you, pretty efficiently if you know what you're doing and if your party is sufficiently leveled up. Whereas in yeah. Final Fantasy VII, Supernova will really mess you up. Yeah, it will, but it takes forever to get there. <laughs> not that long. It's like a minute. Oh, God. And it looks... Well, then it, and, like, that is one of the few things that I'll just sit all the way through, because it just looks amazing. I'm sorry. He blows up the universe, and then he uses it again. That's, he blows up the universe again. But I see, I don't usually get to the point where he uses it twice. Okay, Because what fair. happens is, he'll use it, my party will get, you know, frogged and confused, and down to, like, one hit point and all of that stuff, and I'll just use a Mega Elixir to fix them. Yeah, And then I will go and just hammer him till he's dead. Which you might go, oh, that's not that hard. But the first time you freaking fight him, like, he's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, I think Kefka has a similar move uh, called Fallen Angel or Fallen One, where uh, he uh, he gets you all down to one HP, mm. and uh, you got to have a mega. If you don't have a mega elixir or like someone lined up with Cure Three, uh, you could very easily die. Especially since the uh, previous uh, triad of bosses can inflict you with status. Uh, uh, problems that cause your your hit points to sap and you can't cure them. So looking at the ensemble cast, I, I gotta ask, Nadia, who is your favorite character in Final Fantasy VI? I always have a soft spot for Celeste and Locke. Yeah, you and everybody else. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I w- okay, okay. I would say Shadow is definitely my favorite. I really like Shadow a lot. Um, I think... I think it's really interesting how Square Enix had that whole relationship between him and Realm, and instead of saying, like, hey, everyone, look at us, look at what we're writing, they really leave it up to you to figure it out. I think you can spend a lot of time debating whether or not Final Fantasy VI had a good <laughs> battle system. I would mm-hmm. actually venture to say that its battle system isn't... It's pretty unbalanced for the most part. Like, it's really yeah, abusable a in a way that maybe Final Fantasy VIII's battle system is abusable. I would say Final Fantasy V has a better battle system. But mm-hmm. I think the thing that sets it apart from its sequels is certainly compared to Final Fantasy VII, the characters themselves have a lot more individuality, yes. especially because you can, well, I mean, they have their own perks, they have their own abilities that they can actually equip. Like a character like Shadow is going to have zero being able to come in and kill everybody, which is always mm-hmm. awesome. I love that dog. 
It's name is zero. Oh, it's right? interceptor. Interceptor. No, it's interceptor. <laughs> I think of it is zero. Name. God, uh, interceptor. Interceptor is an amazing dog. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, they all have different weapons. They all have different special abilities and, and special attacks. And yeah, no, I, I like the I like the different. There's just enough differentiation there, but also just enough customization and being able to equip the espers and all that. Yeah, there is. And I know the Esper system is quite broken, but um, I also like how uh, this was one of the first RPGs I ever played, if not the first, where you really, every character had a skill that was unique to them, like uh, uh, Sabin, for example, with the, the, using like, you know, the Street Fighter moves to, to execute powerful attacks. That was pretty neat. All right. So, Nadia, what do you think are the best moments in Final Fantasy VI? I think we already talked about it one which was the battle on the floating continent and the mm-hmm. end of the world and the complete shock. Uh, everybody's always going to poke to the point to the opera scene. The opera scene's a good one. Um, I still like that very much. Uh, I kind of appreciate that we got a teen pregnancy story and like it had been some time since I'd watched Degrassi, so I thought that was entertaining. I can't believe they made the opera scene work. It should not have they did. worked. It worked. It totally worked. I liked it very much. And like everybody kind of sees that as like the moment that kind of defined Uematsu's what genius. <laughs> it's like he yeah, made an it. opera out of a freaking 16 bit sound chip where they're just going, boo, 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 boo. <laughs> right? It's very yes. Muppets. <laughs> oh, it's totally Muppets. It's amazing. I love it. But, uh, no, it's good. So, what are some other great moments in Final Fantasy VI? Um, I like uh, going back to a second for. Uh, with Celeste waking up alone on the, the um, Lone Island, um, I really like how that whole sequence sets the stage for what's about to come, because I don't know if you've noticed, but when you're on that island, uh, Sid tells you that, like, you know, animals are dead or dying, and when you go to out there and try to fight anything, just if you feel like it, the enemies you face off against die instantly. Like, they have, like, they're all, like, terminally poisoned, and they just die in front of you. Except for, and that is... The black dra- there are something called black dragons, and they're zombies, and they're healthy, <laughs> and they will kill you. But everything else, every flesh and blood creature on that island will die before you can even touch it. And I just found that very, very depressing. And the music that accompanies you when you're out on the map at that point in the game is one of the most depressing Final Fantasy uh, compositions ever. So for me, the best moments in Final Fantasy VI are literally anything to do with Ultros. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you fighting like this octopus thing? I don't know, but it's an awesome octopus. (laughs) I love that his name was Orthos, and it was mistranslated as Ultros. You know, there's Woolsey's influence right there because he's still Ultros. My other idea for this podcast, by the way, was great mini-bosses in RPG history. He's got to be one of the great recurring mini-bosses. He is is definitely one of the big ones, especially since... uh, Can you even beat him? I don't know if you can ever beat him, but the point is he ends up working as a receptionist in a coliseum because his debt was too high. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's just weird things like that. But I think Ultros really defined the distinct personality of Final Fantasy at that time. It did. Like, and he was some much-needed comic relief, a game that needed it on occasion. And you couldn't really... And it really showed how a 16-bit Final Fantasy would be different from some of the later games in the series because... It would just look too weird to have an octopus as a receptionist in a 3D game. <laughs> but it makes sense does, in Final Fantasy VI. It works. He does show up, though, in some later games, doesn't he? Does he? I mean, maybe as he, a villain in a bot battle, but does, is he like a receptionist? No, he's not a receptionist. Yeah, like, actually on yeah. the world? I don't know. 
You, you certainly don't see. I, th- I think Ultra should have been running the gas station in Final Fantasy 15. I agree. That would have been fantastic. There you go. That's a great callback right there. <laughs> yeah. Come on. Listen to us, Square. Come on. Implement this with the next game. All right. So, Nadia, the reason that I put Final Fantasy VI so high up here, and spoiler alert, Final Fantasy VII isn't on this list. Final Fantasy VIII isn't <laughs> oh, on no. this list. Final Fantasy IX isn't on this list. Final Fantasy X isn't on this list. Final Fantasy IV is not on this list. These games are not on this list because I think Final Fantasy VI is the peak of Final Fantasy. It just does not get any better, and in fact, it gets a lot worse after this. And why would you say something? Why do you say something so controversially? It's so brave. Yeah, I just I look at Final Fantasy VII, and I see a game that was a supernova in the RPG space, hugely influential, turned a huge number of people into RPG fans. But when you take a step back from it, it's kind of a mess. Oh yeah, it's a total mess. Uh, I love it, but it's a total. Final mess. Fantasy VI holds together a lot better, and it's ultimately a lot deeper. I think Final mm-hmm. Fantasy VI attests to the benefits of working in a 2D sprite-based kind of environment. It was the same with Ultima yes. Seven, where yes. you could just be bigger and more ambitious and more interesting. There's tons to do in Final Fantasy VII as well, but even more so in Final Fantasy VI. Yeah, with Final Fantasy VI, you really get the sense that uh, they did not waste space, uh, whereas Final Fantasy VII, they wasted space. Yeah, and then you look at Final Fantasy IX... I like Final Fantasy IX a lot, but man, oh man, they were pushing the tech a little too hard. Yeah. yeah. And it's really slow. It doesn't hold up quite as well as, say, Final Fantasy VI. And when it comes down to it, I think the ensemble is just just that much better than Final Fantasy IX. Just just a smidge. Just, just a smidge. I think there's a yeah, lot to love about IX, but I think VI is still better. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I feel the same way. I like Final Fantasy IX uh, very much a lot, but in a way, it was a continuation of VI. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, sort of. It's it's a tribute to all Final Fantasy. I would say it's almost yeah. as much... I would say it's much more a continuation of one. Mm, that's a good point. For Americans playing Final Fantasy IX for the first time, like me, who had cut their teeth on Final Fantasy VI and VII, it was a very confusing game because it, it was just rife with Final Fantasy I, uh, two, and three references. You're, oh, so you were like, "What the hell is that thing?" When you saw VV, right? Well, no, I I knew what <laughs> I knew what a black mage was at that time because I knew enough about Final Fantasy, mm-hmm. but I didn't know who Garland was, oh, or like right, the significance right. of that, right? Uh, and I didn't understand the significance of the uh, chaos or whatever the 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 final 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 boss yeah. that appeared at the end of Final Fantasy Nine. It just kind of rankled me. It's so dependent on previous Final Fantasies that. While it does stand up on its own, it doesn't stand up on its own as well as it could. Right, not as well as 6, definitely. And to me, 10 is when it started to go off the rails. So at that point, it's like, eh. (laughs) I don't (laughs) want to discount 10 too much, but if you put a gun to my head and said, right now, go play a Final Fantasy, it would either be 5 or 6. Yeah, I would probably choose 6 or 7, but uh, I might give 12 another go. Yeah? Yeah, I really enjoy 12, and I'll play it again when it comes on the Switch. I think 12 is really good. Yeah, uh, I think nice. Final Fantasy IV still has a lot going for it. It's a very like yeah. laser focused, very sharp RPG that's still a lot of fun to play, but also has an mm-hmm. immensely goddamn cheesy story. Oh God, does it ever? Yes, totally. Uh, but it is if you just want an RPG that's kind of directs you from one point to the other and doesn't really expect you to do any heavy thinking. It's a good game to just you know go back to, but it's not by any means better than Final Fantasy VI. As for Final Fantasy VI on the Super Nintendo, I mean, 
it and Chrono Trigger were the pinnacle of RPGs in one of the great golden ages for console RPGs. It's just when console mm-hmm. RPGs truly came of age. And along with, you know, Dragon Quest V, and maybe you could also say Dragon Quest VI, like it really showed, it, it was really a place where RPG developers were pushing them to their selves to the absolute limit. Uh, this, this was truly square at its absolute freaking height. Uh, it's yes. creative height that it knew the Super Nintendo inside and out. It knew mm-hmm. how to make amazing looking games on the Super Nintendo. And when you just feel that comfortable with the technology and you have that experienced team full of extremely creative people, very talented people, you're going to turn out amazing games. And that is exactly what happened with Final Fantasy VI. Uh, yeah, Final Fantasy VI is just a, a very special game for me, being, uh, I guess, my first real huge introduction into Square, uh, my first real huge introduction into RPGs. Like, I had been off RPGs for a very long time after Dragon Warrior on the NES. Um, it's uh, just has everything. It has that emotional story. It has great gameplay. It has great characters. It has epic soundtrack. And I would love to see it get... Uh, some kind of a release on the Switch that's not that horrible uh, uh, Steam port, please. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's a real bummer, isn't it? It is. It's just like, oh. It's like I, I'm thinking to myself, I wouldn't mind playing Final Fantasy VI again. Oh, I don't want to put it on my phone because it makes me sad. I think it's interesting that Final Fantasy VI is put on this pedestal. It's like... <laughs> That's one of the things I've just been thinking about this entire segment is why uh-huh. why this game? Why why do people love it so much? Why does it stand out so much um, above the crowd, right? I, I would say mm-hmm. maybe only the only one that's more beloved is Final Fantasy VII, and that's because, right. I mean, that is where so many people kind of got their start. And I guess it just, it holds up extremely well, <laughs> Mm-hmm. And a yeah. really good graphics and really good soundtrack can take you a long darn way, right? And then there's so much to discover in that game that it's given people a lot to chew through. And then finally, it I mean, everybody has a character that they probably like in Final Fantasy VI. So. Yeah, and uh, speaking of, before we depart, uh, did you wait for Shadow at the, at the uh, floating continent? Yeah, he died. Yeah, he died. When I played again, I waited for him. But yeah, yeah that's the, the thing, right? I mean, things like Shadow being able to die if you didn't know to wait at the floating continent, I think really made it stand apart from so many RPGs of that time on the Super Nintendo. Yeah. And it still um, holds up extremely well today. Like, that's something that you would see in maybe another RPG. I think I found out about, like, you know, Shadow surviving, uh, like, through GamePro. Like, they had, like, a, um, a miniature... Uh, guide that they printed every month and i was like holy crap you can you can save shadow ah well, and i felt bad this was the time period in which you know you had the shenglong stuff on in egm and all that yeah <laughs> so everybody was trying to figure out how to save everybody yeah and you didn't have uh, data dumps and that kind of thing so right, people wouldn't be time. able to data mine that for example uh you know Sh- shadow could survives so it was a big surprise yeah um i think the most indication they gave you was if you finish the game without him you could kind of see him looking over uh the town of thamazda thasmazda however they pronounce that which is another interesting clue into his origin which i I thought that was a nice touch all right that is 
Number four on our top 25 RPG list, Final Fantasy VI, a game that is difficult to discuss because, like I said, so much has been said about it, even on this podcast. But I'm sure that you have thoughts on Final Fantasy VI and you want to talk about it, so make sure to drop me a line. You have heard all of the information already. But All right, Nadia, let's continue on to the mailbag. All right, Nadia, last week we did Suikoden 2 as part of our top 25 RPG list, and we also did an interview with the Red Hook Studio folks, which went up as a special interview midweek, which was a lot of fun. But as usual, there are comments from the readers, and this one is from Benjamin Lou 86 I've never played Suikoden before, but here's an interesting story about my only encounter with the series. I once worked with a patient in a hospital who had anti-retrograde amnesia. The kind that was in Memento, where your past memory is fine, but you can't make any new memories at all. He had perfectly normal intelligence and could hold down a job, despite his disability. The most amazing thing about this guy was the fact that he loved JRPGs and Suikoden in particular. Although he was unable to remember the names of the characters or whatever had happened in the story just hours previous, he had managed to internalize something about the games and developed a liking for the series. In playing and replaying the Suikoden games... He gained a small measure of mastery over his amnesia and found personal heroes in his relationship with the characters. I guess I could Aww. check out the games, huh? That's very nice. That's a nice story. I like that. Imagine being able to just experience something for the first time over and over again. Yeah, that's, uh, I don't know how much I'd like it, but it's a fascinating concept. And there's better, there's worse to do than squeak it in, I guess. I don't like Adam Sandler movies, but Fifty First Dates is actually pretty good. Ah. It brings back the rom-com pairing um, of Drew Barrymore and Adam Sandler from uh, The Wedding Singer. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Fifty First Dates. All right. It's about a gal who has amnesia and you know falling in love with her. Oh, okay. I do remember that, but I never saw it. Uh, I think the last Sandler movie I saw was Happy Gilmore. She can only make new memories within like the span of a day, but then it basically all resets. Uh, so he has to just keep reintroducing himself to her every single time. Mm-hmm. Oh, that sounds like it could be sweet. Yeah. Uh, Gamer Law says, it, This week's discussion brought me back to an article that Jeremy Parrish wrote for the site in 2014, Six Secrets of Suikoden 2's Success. In his passage highlighting the game's graphics, Jeremy summed it up perfectly. Suikoden 2 is like paging through a gentle storybook, rich in its seeming compl- simplicity and bursting with love and sincerity. Now that we've sort of reached peak graphics and the cutting edge of game visuals is the playground of a handful of well-funded studios, the world has developed a newfound appreciation for the old ways of sprites and bitmaps. Today, Suikoden 2 looks like the deepest, most beautifully realized indie game you've ever seen. Not sure anyone mm. could capture it better. Also, they think that Jason should play it. The Alliance Alive. Drew Q says, fun podcast. I first played through the game maybe two years ago on the Vita, so you can imagine how many of my gamer friends want to chat about it. Such a layered game with a strong sense of reality. And like mentioned, Luca Blight is a monster due to his personal involvement. Just a psycho. I like to study how game stories are driven. And this one had such a subtle rollout. Like having to get your stolen wallet back from Chaco, which introduced a new character in a town. I first got into the series via Black Sheep, Suikoden, and Tearcrise. So I was waiting for the fantasy to kick in, but it never really did. Very down-to-earth characters and plot, which became refreshing, actually. Mm-hmm. And Cam Chow says... 
One of my favorite moments of Suikoden 2 is so easily missable because you have to choose to run away with Nanami during the events in Tinto. You're in this terrible war and now the undead are attacking? You guys are just teenagers. It's no surprise Nanami would suggest this is just too much and then you two should just flee to somewhere where you can live a more normal life away from all this danger and violence. Most of the time, of course, you'll of course choose to stay and fight because of course you would. You are a JRPG hero. But if you do choose to flee the ensuing scenes, there are consequences and that ending you get is just so heartbreaking. Nanami loves you so much. She wants you to be safe. To her eyes, it's just so unfair that you kids got wrapped up into these politics and war between nations. So you flee. At some point, something happens to Ryo, and Nanami literally carries you on her back through the mountains, determined to take you away somewhere safe. In the final scene of the scenario, you are confronted by your allies who catch up. One of them straight up bitch slaps you for abandoning everybody. <laughs> you learn of another of your allies dies because of you running away, yet they still ask for you to return. All the while, that heart-rending requiem of grief plays. If you ignore your allies, please, and still choose to run away, Requiem of Grief stops playing. The screen fades to black, and then a few seconds later, a little picture of a cabin in the woods comes up on screen. No fanfare, no dialogue, no more music or end credits. That's it. It's just over. Nanami and you were able to escape and find some peace, and you, the player, get to enjoy this pretty picture and contemplate your actions and their consequences. It's such a powerful ending. If you haven't experienced that bad ending, it's worth playing through at least once. It's amazing how this cute little RPG with a masterful sprite work can punch you in the gut and make you feel more emotion for the more than most high-budget AAA games today. I remember that. Um, the first time I played through, I didn't do, I didn't uh, run away. But the second time I played through, I said, oh, I'm going to give it a try. And yeah, uh, first of all, Shu bitch slaps you, and you deserve it. Uh, and then I think it's uh, Ridley who dies, who's the uh, kobold general. And uh, his son takes over. But thou must. But, uh, but thou must. But thou must. <laughs> and then Final Fantasy VI so is like, do you want to join the Alliance? No. Do you want to join the Alliance? No. Do you want to join the <laughs> well, Alliance? Ask one more time. No. Well, you gotta. So think about it. Yeah, although if you refuse three times, you get a better, uh, you get a better relic for Ooh. it. Oh, man. I got to remember that. You get a Genji glove. Axe of the Blood God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Thanks for listening. Uh, yeah, man, this ended up being a pretty long episode. We're getting very close to being toward the end of the Top 25 RPG Countdown, Nadia. Yeah, it's very exciting. Kind of sad, but very exciting. Yeah, I'm, I'm sad, but also relieved to almost be done. <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, I think so. Um, I can see why you are. In I'm glad that. that we stuck with it, but oh my God, what a project. Somebody was asking, oh, yeah. why haven't we done, um, why haven't we built kind of a hub page for this yet? And the answer is that I'm kind of waiting for, I'm kind of waiting for mm-hmm. the series to be done because if this pops up on Google, which I, I just don't want people to click on it and be like, oh, it's not done yet. Yeah. <laughs> if yeah. it says no, top 25 RPGs of all time, it should be done, right? There's only 19. There's only, what? What's this? There's only 21. Can't you guys count? You're stupid. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could say top 25 rpgs of all time work in progress and then update it but you know who the hell has time as it like is that? like find the latest one on the site they're kind of around and you'll find a table of contents linking to all of the other ones inside that article so so yeah we got companion pieces that go with all of them um so yeah we've got a uh this is episode 197 we're like three episodes away from episode 200 and i kind of want to blow it out and have a, a good time and this is a it's a perfect time to end the top 25 rpg countdown so i'm looking forward to it mm-hmm. all right nadia thanks for joining me as always and of course you can find nadia on 
Twitter at Nadia Oxford. I'm on Twitter at the underscore Catbot. Make sure to subscribe to the newsletter. Make sure to subscribe to all of the different things. Uh, we've got GDC coming up in a couple weeks, uh, in which we'll be, well, I mean, they have a panel about the history of Panzer Dragoon, which is exciting, and hopefully we can cool. you know, score an interview with those guys. Uh, the folks from Larian Studios will be there, that be Divinity Original Sin, so there'll be some RPG-related stuff that hopefully comes out of it. And then uh, after that is PAX East, and Nadia and I have a panel. We're going to be playing Dreamcast games. It's going to be fun. You should come join us. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Yeah, you can find all the information on the PAX East schedule, and that's how you can meet us. And also, Nadia's going to be on a Retronauts panel. Yes, I'm looking forward to that. If you want even more and even deeper dive into the Final Fantasy VI, I suggest you go check out the episode of Retronauts um, that I was on. Uh, we really, really, really went in depth there. We also talk about Final Fantasy four, five, uh, and seven. In fact, I think the Final Fantasy seven episode finally just came out, and that's a two parter, and it's like three hours. So I can't remember if I'm on that one. I know I talked about Final Fantasy seven with Retronauts at some point, and I don't. You are not on this when. one in particular. It was me, Chris Kohler, or somebody else. Oh, Bob and Jeremy. Oh, okay, so okay, yeah. so not this time. Yes, yeah, so I strongly recommend those. I was also on those, and we really just dig dig the heck in as opposed to kind of putting into context and talking about why it's like a great amazing rpg so all right uh man i'm ready to be done okay nadia (laughs) thanks for coming on the show and to everybody else thanks for listening and until next time happy adventuring